Hello, I'm Pastor Marshall Oaks, and I'm the lead pastor at Red Hills Church in Tallahassee, Florida. And you're about to listen to a message from our Sunday morning gathering. If you enjoy what you hear, please leave us some feedback on iTunes. And if you really like what God is doing at our church, consider supporting the ministry work at redhillschurch.com give. Thanks, and now for some Bible teaching. So we are in the second week of our Advent message series. If you weren't here last week or you kind of need a refresher on what we're doing, um, Advent is, it comes from a Latin word that essentially means coming or arrival or the showing up. And so we use that word historically in the church to kind of communicate this first showing up or arrival of Jesus. But we also know through scripture that that's not the end of the story. We're promised and the ascension, actually, the angels are like, wait, why are, in, in the book of Acts, everyone's looking up at Jesus ascending into heaven. And the angel's are like, why are you looking down? Don't you know that he's gonna calm down the same way that he's ascended in the clouds? So we know there's a second arrival coming sometime in the future. Jesus is coming back for his church. He's gonna end evil. He's gonna put Satan where he belongs in the lake of fire in torment. He's gonna set all wrong things right. He's gonna, he's gonna bring the end to sickness and death. Our king is coming back for a second arrival. And so the responsibility that we have as the people of God is to be ready for it, to prepare, to make ready what's happening. During the first arrival before Jesus started his ministry, you got John the Baptist out in the wilderness baptizing people, shouting, prepare the way of the Lord. That preparation is what we should be doing right now on the eve of his second arrival. We should be preparing the road. We should be making ready for his return. So that's what Advent is. This is a season, it's not just Christmas, it's not just celebration, it is celebration, but that's not the end of the story. We are celebrating his first arrival or showing up, but we're also preparing for his second arrival because we don't want to be caught unaware. We don't want to be caught um, um, not ready when he shows up. So this is the perfect season where we readjust some things, we let go of some stuff, we make a big decision right now to not just celebrate, but also prepare. So that's kind of what we talked about last week, and that's where we're heading um, this week and next week. This idea of celebrating and preparing are kind of the two things that we cling to each year when we celebrate. Advent, and I think the biggest question I always get is, well, how do we celebrate and how do we prepare? I, I, I know that those are the two things, but what does that look like? Well, it takes on different forms. It looks differently for different kinds of different folks. Celebrating for a lot of us looks just like what we're doing right now. Coming together and just singing, singing about Jesus, studying about Jesus, being in the presence with each other at a time where uh, uh, it is, um, man, it looks real dark and cloudy out there spiritually in our world, coming together with the people of God and just knowing that you're not alone, that's huge, right? That is a celebration in and of itself, that in the darkness, a light showed up, and that light is now in us. So for some of us, celebration is just this gathering. Some of us for celebration um, looks like getting right all up into the festivities, man, putting up a Christmas tree and turning on the songs and singing about Jesus like we did at the end of the worship song where we sang a Christmas carol, but we did it worship style. That's an example of celebration. All this reflection of, man, we're just doing stuff that are all, it's all about Jesus and we're fixing our eyes on better things. We're celebrating. But preparing um, looks differently for different folks too. For, for some, uh, it looks like actually studying the word. For some, it looks like um, praying or um, spending this season to kind of um, repent or like uh, letting go of stuff. For some of you, um, Advent preparation right now, it looks like forgiving. You need to spend this season 
next couple weeks leading up to Christmas, really working on forgiving some folks and just letting go of some stuff because you've been harboring stuff all year long and starting to eat you up on the inside. And, that, and you're not prepared for the sky to crack open and Jesus to come back when you're sitting there holding on to this unforgiveness. So preparation looks like making ready, letting go, getting stuff that, that has nothing to do with his kingdom out of your house. You know how we do spring cleaning? It's Christmas cleaning. It's the same idea. We're getting all of that stuff that's been stockpiling all year out of our hearts so that we can be lean and ready for his return. Amen? So that's celebration and preparation. But today, I think one of the biggest ways um, to kind of look at preparation um, uh, that affects all of us, some of you are like, well, I don't really have anybody to forgive. Okay, well, that's, that illustration wasn't for you. But there, there is one thing that I think kind of all of us can work at in regards to preparation, and that is preparing for his return through obedience to his word. All right, I think that that's kind of one that, that all of us can kind of look at. Because in your heart, there are areas where you are obedient and you do what God told you to do, but then there are some areas that uh, it's kind of like the junk drawer in your uh, kitchen. You know, everybody's got a junk drawer, right? It's the, it's the drawer that holds all the things when it doesn't have a place and you open it up and there's like old tape in there and just one stick of gum and half of a scissor. You know what I'm talking about? Like three thumbtacks, but two of them are rusty. It's the drawer, like an old bill. There, there, there are, there's a drawer where you just throw everything else. In your heart, there's that drawer where you just ignore obeying what God's told you to do. The rest of your house can be spick and span, the, the, heart, the house of your heart. Things can be in their place, clean, you're ready to go, you're, you're obeying, you're walking in obedience, you read this, yes, God says to do it, and I'm, gonna, I'm gonna apply this in my life. But then he says, you need to be doing this thing, and you're like, well, I don't know about that, I'll come back to it. Just put it in the drawer. Now is the time to work on obedience during this season of Advent. So that's what, that's what we're doing. So today, I wanna talk about preparing for his return by obeying what he said. Cool? So we're gonna start that in Matthew. So if you've got your, um, your, your Bible, I want you to go over to Matthew chapter one, and we're gonna start in verse 18, because we left off last week in 17. I want you to go to Matthew chapter one, verse 18. While you're turning there, uh, we'll put it up here on the screen. If you don't uh, have a Bible, if you do, go ahead and, and turn to it. But as we're turning there and we're talking about this idea of obedience, I kind of want you to, um, put to put to the side what you're thinking about obedience. Because as soon as I say obeying God or, or walking in obedience, a lot of us have an, a, a really weird relationship with obedience. Because as soon as I say obedience, some of you, like the cornerstone of your character is obedience. Like that's who you are. You can, people always count on you. You're the one who's following the rules. And when people say, do this, you don't ask why. Yeah, that's what we do. But there are some of you, like you, you've got a lifetime struggle with obedience. It's almost like an untied shoe lace where you're just constantly tripping over this thing. You don't understand why there's rules or who made the rules. Why do we have to follow the rules? So sitting in this room, even when I say obedience, you're starting to like front load this concept before you're even approaching the word with your understanding of what people have told you in your life about obedience. You're probably tired of hearing your mom say, you just need to obey me. Right? Or, or bosses telling you, I don't want you questioning why I'm telling you to do this, I just want you to do it. 
well, I'm a person who questions. Why can't you explain it to me? All of us show up to the word with lots of baggage about how we think about stuff. And that's why I prayed the prayer at the beginning for us to surrender that stuff. Because before we even start reading about obedience, everybody in here already has your understanding of what obedience is. And it is a component of preparing, but obedience is what the word says it is, not what you think about it. All right, so I brought that up as you're turning there because I just want you to think about the idea that you have already started assuming in your mind things about obedience before we've already even started reading about what obedience looks like. Because at the end of the day, like this whole thing, it's not about you and what you think. This whole thing, all this, what we're doing here, it's about him and what he thinks. And so you're gonna have to let some things go. And after that, you're gonna have to let some more things go. And after you do that a while, you're gonna realize that you don't have anything else, and that's the best position you could possibly be in. So whatever your perception about obedience is, shelf it for a minute and let's get into the word. Are we there now? Everybody turn. Matthew chapter one, verse 18. It says, now the birth of Jesus took place in this way. When his mother Mary had been betrothed to Joseph, before they came together, she was found to be with child from the Holy Spirit. And her husband Joseph, being a just man and unwilling to put her to shame, resolved to divorce her quietly. You guys know what's going on, right? It's not the first time you've read this story. You understand what's happening. Like there are, the wedding ceremony hasn't happened yet, but Mary shows up pregnant and she's like, I haven't been unfaithful. And Joseph's like, yeah, but you get a baby in your stomach. There's only one way that happens. And so you're kind of at a standoff. And so Joseph, he's a just man. He's like, look, I, I don't want to shame you. I don't make a big deal of this. How about we just get a divorce? And we talked last week about how you can get a divorce before you're actually married. They're in the legal process of being betrothed right now. So this idea is that legally their standing is they're already married. And so Joseph, he doesn't want to bring shame on her. He's like, okay, we're just going to do this quietly. But as he considered these things, this is verse 20, but as he considered these things, behold, now that's an important word. I'll come back to it in just a minute, but just kind of put your finger on it. Behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream, saying, Joseph, son of David, Do not fear to take Mary as your wife, for that which is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She will bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. And all of this, it took place to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. This is Isaiah. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. So when Joseph woke up from sleep, he did exactly as the angel of the Lord commanded him. He took his wife, knew her not until she had given birth to his son, and he called his name Jesus. Now, What I want to do is I want to go back to verse 20 on that word, behold. Because up to this point, you've got Joseph assuming his life is going one way. I thought I was going to be married to this beautiful young girl, and now it turns out that she probably hasn't been faithful to me because she's got a child in her belly, but I don't want to be that guy. 
so I'm gonna just kind of quietly divorce her and I'll move on and I'll find somebody else. He's got in his mind the way things go. Now what's interesting here is in Matthew, the story is from Joseph's perspective. In Luke, the story is from Mary's perspective. So for both perspectives, I encourage you this week for some homework, go and read the story from Luke because from Mary's perspective, it's just this stuff happening to her and it's like, man, God chose me and I get to be the mother of, of, of Jesus. This is awesome, yeah. Man, do unto me according to your will, yes, right? And then from Joseph's perspective, it's like, this is getting way out of hand. This is not what I expected. Right, you've got Mary, oh man, this is awesome. Joseph's like, this is not awesome. This is the opposite of awesome. I can't get down with any of this. Let's just, so he has his perception of the way things are going. He's looking at his life one specific way. And then behold. Now this word behold is a word that is used in a narrative sense to kind of um, shift focus. It's thrown in there biblically as a way to say, um, here is an invitation for you to look at the same thing you've been looking at, but from a different perspective. That's what that word means. That's the reason why it's used again in verse 23. Behold, that virgin that is uh, carrying the child that's gonna bear the son, behold, it's not just any old girl with any old child. Look at it differently, it's actually God showing up among us. So this word behold is important because it's an invitation to, um, from the angel to Joseph, but it's an invitation for, for us as the reader to look at the, cir- the circumstances from a different perspective. Not the way you're thinking about looking at the, the situation, but look at the, the same facts from God's perspective. Get in a helicopter, take, go, just go vertical and look at the same circumstances you had before, but from his different perspective. So this word, behold, is an invitation for Joseph to see his life differently. So let's behold at what the angel's telling him. The angel is saying, behold, this situation that looks dire and is not what you have picked for yourself, when you look at it through God's plan, this child, it's not the product of infidelity, it's actually a work of the Holy Spirit. God's in this, he did this. But it doesn't stop there because what he wants from you is to adopt this child, give this child your family lineage, which was the point of Matthew 1 through 17, the lineage is connected to Joseph. So Joseph, I want you to adopt this child, I want you to name him Jesus, and I want you to raise him as your own kid. Now that's a whole nother message series about the power of adoption. The idea that you can raise someone that's not your own direct blood, but still be a father to them. Paul talks about that. You've got a lot of people wanting to tell you what to do in life. They, they kind of want to be a guide to you, but what you don't have is a lot of fathers, a lot of people who are fatherly to you, that care for you, that will put your best interests in front of theirs will care for you rather than caring for their own self-interest. And so the invitation to Joseph is, man, I want you to join in on God's work. And that joining looks like raising the son of God. Yeah, that's as heavy as it sounds. Imagine if God asked you to raise his son. And then also, you had other boys in that family. Imagine the family dynamic of just going to town when you've got Jesus in the back seat and his other brothers. Imagine the desire to constantly want to say, why can't you act like your brother Jesus? 
because he's not constantly getting into stuff. The weight of the ask here is huge. And what the angel is saying is, I know you're only thinking about this one way because these are the facts, but I want you to take the same facts. I'm not gonna change them. These facts are true, but I want you to look at them from a different perspective. Your wife is actually pregnant, but she's not pregnant the way you think she's pregnant. This is a work of God. And so I want you to join in on the work. Now, what was Joseph's response in 18 through 25? Well, his response was obedience. He woke up, he took Mary as his wife, he did exactly as the angel instructed, he named the child Jesus, he raised the boy as his own, all because the angel said, behold, look at this just differently for a second. What if this is not the worst thing that's ever happened to you? What if this is God's invitation to join his work? And it just looks strange because it's not how you would have picked it. Now. That's a great story and we're familiar with it, but I wanna behold something else in this story for a minute. In this story, God invited Joseph in to join his work and Joseph said yes, but this is at the end of Matthew 1 through 17, which was 17 verses of people who all said yes to God's invitation to his work. Joseph wasn't the first guy to show up and say, all right, you wanna use me? Yes. No, he was one in a long line, 17 verses of people who were just living their lives and God show up and says, you're mine. Come over here and join my work. Stop doing your own thing, which isn't working, let's be honest. Come over here and join my work. The invitation, behold, your life is more than what you've been looking or what you think it is right now. Come over here and join my work and look at, look at the gifts and the talents that you have and the shortcomings and the things that you don't like and the weaknesses. Look at them from God's perspective and then come over here and join his work. Now the good news about this and the reason why I say behold this is because we can look at this and just stop at Joseph and say, okay, well Joseph and a long line of people who have all said yes to God, that's all good news. We can celebrate in that. We can celebrate that we're all sitting here because these guys all said yes to God. God invited them, they joined his work, that provided for more people to join, more people, and eventually we're all sitting here as products of this message going through people saying yes. And that's what I'm, that's what I'm talking about when, this, when I say that this work started before Joseph, but also is going to continued after Joseph. It was going on before him, he joined in on it, and it happened afterwards because Jesus grew up He started his ministry and he started doing the same thing. He was inviting these disciples, hey, leave your nets, come follow me. And then long after they're gone, there's a guy named Paul. He's out killing Christians. And then God knocks him to the ground on this road and says, hey, I want you to stop doing what you're doing. I want you to join my work. And then this is a kid named Timothy. He he says yes to God's work. And then one after another, all of these people just kept saying yes to God's work. The point, what, am, what, what am I getting at? What is the point here? The point is that um, when God says, don't be afraid and join my work, that was a thing that he's always done. It was a thing that he was doing here and it is a thing that he is still doing today. Right now, today, God is inviting you to join his work. He wants you to participate in the thing that's been going on long before you ever showed up and it's gonna be going on long after you are gone. But the invitation is your life can amount to way more than it ever has. 
only if you surrender it for something much greater than what you've been living for. If you make a decision to say that what I'm living for is bigger than just me and my own desires and the way I want things, what I could say yes to would actually allow me to participate in building God's kingdom and join in with people for thousands of years who've been doing this, then maybe, maybe what I'm doing, maybe my life, it might actually start being worth something on like the cosmic scale. That's the invitation God's giving us today during Advent. There's a celebration, man, praise God. God did it before, but we're a, there's a preparation part and that preparation is he's doing it right now. What's your response? The invitation is join in on what I'm doing because there's a blessing that's tied to it. There's a joy that's tied to it. There's a refreshing that's tied to it, but you gotta say yes. But here's the thing, it doesn't end with saying yes. That's the message that the world likes preaching. That's the message that bad churches like preaching, right? That the invitation is wide open, come one, come all, come as you are, and stay as you are. Anybody can come, anybody's welcome. You can bring whatever beliefs or thoughts or, or, or feelings. You bring all your hurt and you don't even have to let go of it. Just bring it and just hold it tight. But we all know that God wants better than that. Like no one is gonna say to uh, the selfish businessman who only takes advantage of his people so that he can pad his pocketbooks, you're okay staying that way, right? In our culture, not even Christians, in our culture, we're not okay saying that like, no, evil people, you're cool staying that way. No one's gonna say to the child molester, man, you don't have to give anything up. You just bring all of that, come on. No, we expect of some people a degree of change so that when we say God's inviting you and you respond and say yes, that yes comes with a change. It comes with an obedience. Showing up to the party means I'm showing up and agreeing to the way the things that the king has set at his party and not my own things. But somehow we think that since we're not as bad as other people, that the invitation for us is just to show up. I'm doing you a favor by being here. There's nothing required of me. What's required is everybody else. I'm done changing. I've done all the changing that needs to happen in my own life. No. And that, I mean, to this world, that's an offensive message. You mean to tell me that Jesus' message is he loves everybody, but we can't stay the way we are? That's exactly, exactly what his message is. Yes, I love you. Come one, come all. But in you showing up, you gotta agree to me being king. You gotta agree to the way that I'm doing things. Now, for some of you, like, I don't know how it jives with the gospel message, because when I read about Jesus, he sure seems like a loving guy. Let me read you one of his parables from Matthew 22. This is the parable of the wedding feast, Matthew 22, verse 1. And again, Jesus spoke to them in parables, saying, The kingdom of heaven may be compared to a king who gave a wedding feast for his son and sent his servants to call those who were invited to the wedding feast, but they would not come. This is Israel, okay? So God, the kingdom of God is like the father 
choosing the people of Israel and then throwing a banquet for his son now that Jesus has showed up and inviting all of the nation to come. Hey, you promised. Kid, come on, it's time for the party now, show up. Verse four, it says, again, he sent other servants saying, tell those who are invited, see, I have prepared my dinner. My fat, my oxen, my fat calves, I've been, uh, they've all been slaughtered. Everything is ready. Come to the wedding feast. It's time. Jesus is here. The promise is here. It's time. But they paid no attention. They went off, one to his farm, another to his business. While the rest, they seized his, they seized his servants and treated them shamefully. And some of, they even killed some of them. These are the prophets. This is what Israel did to the prophets. They killed some of them because they didn't like what they had to say. Well, the king was angry and he sent his troops and destroyed those murderers and burned their city. Then he said to his servants, well, the wedding feast is ready, but those invited were not worthy. So go therefore to the main roads and invite to the wedding feast as many as you can find. Swing the doors wide open and invite everybody. And those servants went out into the roads and they gathered all whom they found, both bad and good. So the wedding hall was filled with guests. Man, that's great news, right? Everybody's showing up, the party's hopping. It's awesome. Man, people are coming to Jesus. The invitation is wide open, everybody come. But when the king came in, To look at the guest, he saw there was a man who had no wedding garment. He wasn't wearing the right clothes. And he said to him, friend, how did you get in here without wearing a wedding garment? And the man was speechless. And the king said to the attendants, bind him hand and foot and cast him into the outer darkness. In that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. For many are called few were chosen. Jesus is teaching in this parable about his kingdom. He's talking about himself. He's talking about the Father. He's talking about the way things work in the kingdom. And we would look at this and say, well, that seems a little harsh. Like, I often don't wear the right clothes to the right party. I'm not even wearing a tie today. And I'm preaching the word of God. How dare me? I'm not great on wearing the right attire. Most of us who are working from home, you've got pajama bottoms and a collared shirt. It's not about the clothes. The parable is a parable. The clothes symbolize something else. What do the clothes symbolize? Well, we've got to look through Scripture. In Romans 13, 14, Galatians 3, 27, Ephesians 4, 24, Colossians 3, 12, 1 Peter 5, 5. We get over and over and over and over. The writers of the New Testament teach us that clothing symbolizes the new thing that you're putting on in the kingdom of God. It symbolizes the repentance that you're putting on. It symbolizes actually putting on Jesus rather than putting on yourself. So the fact that a guy was invited to the party and showed up but refused to walk in repentance means that this guy thought it was okay to come to Jesus but not obey Jesus. To show up to the party and the festivities and be all for the love but ignore the judgment and the obedience. 
to say, I'm cool with Jesus and the way you want to do all of that, but I'm not going to rearrange my life and obey him. I'm not going to put on what he tells me to put on. I'm going to keep wearing these dirty rags that I used to wear and be the guy that I used to be and show up every single week. That doesn't work. That kind of behavior will get you bound up and thrown out into the outer darkness. So why is this important to us? Because what's happening is the king is throwing a banquet and we're invited. But when you show up, you have to rearrange and humble yourself to acknowledge that you are no longer a king. He's the king. Showing up and changing your clothes acknowledges the fact that you're not in charge anymore. There is a shifting of power when you come to Jesus, and it's not you getting more of it. Now, this segues down into Matthew chapter 2, and that's where we're going to pick up. So if you have your Bibles, go to Matthew chapter 2. Now, flip back over from 22. We're going to pick up in chapter 2, verse 1. <clears throat> so we don't just get saved. We actually get saved and we are changed through obedience to this new king. We're putting, <coughs> we're putting on new robes. So chapter two, verse one says, <clears throat> now after Jesus was born in Bethlehem, boy, we skipped a bunch of stuff that Luke covers, right? There's a whole story on how they got to Bethlehem, but Matthew, not important. Now, after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea in the days of Herod the king, that's important, Herod the king. So our first introduction in chapter two to a king. Behold, wise men from the east came to Jerusalem saying, where is he who was born king of the Jews? That's interesting because they're actually asking the king, where's the king? So just in the first two verses, Matthew sets up that there is a competition of kings. These wise men show up and there are two kings. Where is he who has been born king of the Jews? For we saw his star when it rose and have come to worship him. When Herod the king heard this, he was troubled and all Jerusalem with him. And assembling all the chief priests and scribes of the people, he inquired of them where the Christ was to be born. And they told him, these wise people, oh, it's in Bethlehem of Judea, for so it is written by the prophet. O oh, you, Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are by no means least among the rulers of Judah. For from you shall come a ruler who will shepherd my people, Israel. So they're quoting Micah the prophet. Now what's interesting is these guys knew the, they knew the prophecy. What do they do with it? Absolutely nothing. Not one of them says, oh, well, we know the thing, but oh, let me pack my bags. I want to come with you. I got to see this guy. They don't care. So Herod summons the wise men secretly and ascertained from them when the star had appeared. And he sent them to Bethlehem saying, go and search diligently for the child. And when you've found him, bring me word that I too may come and worship him. And after listening to the king, they went on their way and behold the star that they had seen when it rose, went before them until it came to rest over the place where the child was. 
when they saw the star, they rejoiced exceedingly with great joy. And going into the house, they saw the child with Mary, his mother, and they fell down and they worshiped him. And then they opened their treasures. They offered him gifts and gold and frankincense and myrrh. And being warned in a dream not to return to Herod, they departed to their own country by another way. Now, this chapter starts with wise men and a star, and it ends with a contrast of these two kings. What I want to do briefly is just kind of touch on some of these elements because I'm sure that they've piqued your curiosity. I don't think it's worth building in a sermon around a star or where these guys came from, but it is interesting to me how this kind of all happened. First, you've got these, uh, the, the star, and the star um, traditionally, uh, I've read through some different commentaries, I did some study this week, um, there's two prevailing theories. One is that this was probably some form of like a supernova that appeared and disappeared for a certain period of time, and in some way it moved in the sky and directed these guys from the east towards uh, Jerusalem. Um, there are some historical records um, um, down into uh, the Chinese dynasty historical records of supernovas appearing in the sky during this time, so it is possible. There's another prevailing theory. This is kind of the one that I like. Um, uh, during this period of time, there was a celestial event that actually happened three times within like a 10-year period where Jupiter and Saturn, their, um, uh, what is the word I'm looking for? Rotations, orbits, they kind of aligned in a way where the two of the planets lined up to almost look like one bright star. Now, the way that the planets orbit, they're sitting on top of each other so they look brighter than normal, but their orbit is actually a small up and down, which would have pointed them this direction. It's almost like a, here, keep going in this direction. Now, is that important? Probably not, other than the fact that our king is the king of the universe, and planets, he holds them in his hand, and he does whatever he wants, right? The other thing that's interesting to me is these guys. They weren't kings, right? So the we three kings, no, they were just wise men. Right? They weren't kings. Sorry, I'm just debunking your entire Christmas uh, playlist here. They weren't kings. They probably didn't show up to the birth. They probably showed up as much as maybe a year or two after the birth. Definitely a couple months after, they weren't there when the shepherds were there on the night of the birth. And we don't even know that there were three of them. Right? We know there were three gifts, gold, frankincense, and myrrh, but it doesn't say there were three guys. Right? Like, I'm going to buy my wife some Christmas presents this year, but I might buy her like five presents. Does that mean her like five guys got her presents for Christmas? No, just one guy got her five presents. So maybe it was 20 guys showing up with gold, frankincense, and myrrh. Maybe it was only two guys. We don't know. But the idea that we have built up in our, our, our minds these kind of these stories it kind of, it should remind us that you can't just take whatever old wives tale you've heard from other people and assume that that's scripture. Go and read it for yourself. Amen? All right, that's an aside. So we know these guys that came from the East and um, a lot of songs talk about them coming from um, the Orient or uh, maybe as far as like Asia province, but the, the, the realistically, by where these guys came from and as long as they traveled, the, the, the strongest possibility is that these guys came from um, Babylon, Persia, that area. 
And the reason why we think this uh, is because why would these three guys who thousands of miles away would have cared about a star and power being shifted into Jerusalem? Why would they have cared? Well, because just about 400 years before this event, the Jewish people were slaves to the Persians and the Babylonians. And we know a story of a guy named Daniel whose faith made such a profound impact on the culture that the people in that culture actually started worshiping and acknowledging Daniel's God. So in the history of the Babylonians and the Persians, you've got this, this seed of the faith of the one true God kind of rolling around in this culture and it eventually gets to the point where the promise that Daniel had given through all these prophecies for seven years of captivity and the Jewish people talking about their promised return and their king coming, it made quite an impact on the culture to eventually you've got some guys, wise men in the culture who are saying, yeah, that might happen and one day we should be looking for it because they talked about this thing happening and oh, guess what? It's happening. So we should go and acknowledge it. You follow? That speaks to the impact that our faith can have on a lost and dying culture. Don't think that the way you live is not going to be seen by non-believers and impacted in beautiful ways. This is an example of that. But eventually you get these guys here and we see the, the, the story shift to this contrast of these two different kings. And the first king being King Herod. Now King Herod was established by the Roman Empire around 40 BC and he eventually took control around 37 BC. So he was not actually a king. He had no royal lineage whatsoever. He was a king of convenience. He was a guy that the Roman Empire, when they came in and conquered the region, said, we need somebody to rule, but we'll also keep their allegiance to Rome. And Herod's like, I mean, I'll do it. I'm half Jewish. I'm, I'm half Edomite, but I'm also half Jewish. I'll do it. It's okay, you're gonna be our stand-in king. So the fact that King Herod was king really meant nothing. He was king of nothing. He was king only in title. So people who are king only in title, what do they do? They constantly have to protect their kingdom because they have no rights to it. It was just given to them and anything that's given to you can be taken away at any given time. So Herod is constantly trying to protect his own little kingdom and then you've got another king showing up. So you've got this false imposter king, King Herod, and then these wise men show up declaring that the other king of the Jews has showed up. And this guy, he's always existed. He was the creator of the universe. He made everything we see. And as Matthew's already established in the first 17 verses of Matthew, he comes from a royal lineage. He's got the background and the majesty to back up the fact that he is king. He is who he says he is. He's the true king, and he's the focus of these wise men, their worship. Now, Matthew is making one thing clear, that in this first advent, in this story of Jesus showing up for the first time, there is only one true king and all others are imposters. That's the, that's the message of the first advent, and we celebrate that message. That when Jesus came up, him showing up was a declaration that everyone else sitting on man-made thrones, it's time to step down because the real king is here. That's the declaration of the first advent, and we celebrate that. But as we've said, there is a, pre a preparation component to advent. So for us, how do we behold this and apply it in a way where we can not only just celebrate that a king showed up to declare that all other kings are null and void and not important, how do we celebrate and how do we prepare for the second arrival? Well, it looks like Herod's of today stepping down and giving up their crown. But that creates a problem. 
because we live in America and we don't have kings. There's no royal lineage here. We're not celebrating some person who has fake sovereignty or power over us. So who are the Herods of our day? Well, we don't have one. We've got millions. Millions of Herods. And they don't rule from Jerusalem. They sit on the lazy boy in your house. They sit at the head of your dinner table. They sit on the throne of your heart. We've replaced one Herod for millions of Herods because it's not one guy ruling, it's us ruling our own individual lives. We are the modern day Herods who need to step down. Now that's a bold statement, right? Because in the very next chapter, Herod is murdering babies. And you were like, well, raise my, I don't murder babies. Well, congratulations, that's good. That is definitely a plus for you that you are not murdering children and that you don't support abortion and that you're not for that, good for you. But there are some other things that Herod did that look a lot like the way we live. This idea that Herod was this, like, he was like a little imposter and he was desiring to rule over this tiny little kingdom, just kind of control what he had control over. Does that sound familiar? This idea that Herod was this person who was constantly seeking affirmations from strangers and wanting foreign gifts to validate who he was. Isn't that why you have Instagram, Facebook? And we say it, oh, to connect you know, with family and friends. But, but really, how much excitement do you get when people you don't know start commenting on your stuff? It kind of makes you feel good, right? This validation of people you don't know or strangers who are bringing you gifts in the form of likes, telling you you're an amazing person, it feeds your ego. This is nothing like Herod, right? This is exactly like him. This is exactly how we're sitting, this idea where he wanted to defend his power and combat anybody that wanted to challenge it. That doesn't sound like us. This diet, we want to rule over our own destiny. We want to be the, 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 the masters of what's happening in our own life. We want to obey what pleases us and, and, and ignore the things that don't please us. We are the ones who need to step down and follow the wise men to uh, the manger and start worshiping Jesus rather than just trying to say, hey, when you find out where he is, come and tell me. This is the season. The, the, the preparation that is required before his second coming, before his second advent, requires that you stop acting like a king. Do you remember our illustration, what Jesus told in the parable? You're showing up to a party that a different king is throwing for his son. When you show up, you better have on the right clothes. And those clothes are not your priestly royal garments from the throne that you sit on in your living room at the address of your home. You take that stuff off because he is a greater king. You are nobody in his sight and there is no better way to be. Because for us, we think, well, but I kind of want to be somebody. I kind of want somebody to know who I am. The Bible is clear. There's only one person who's worth knowing who you are. There's only one person that you should strive to hear him say your name. And it is not strangers, and it is not the subjects of the false kingdom that you've built and set up around you in the form of your home or your business or your friends or your influence. Look, all of that stuff, it's time to relinquish your crown. That's what Advent preparation looks like today. You 
getting off of your throne and letting Jesus take his rightful seat. So the first advent was an invitation to celebrate. But the invitation is never just show up. The invitation is show up and obey. And the greatest way we could obey in this season today is to take off that fake crown you've been wearing. Stop being the imposter, ruler of your own destiny, and let Jesus direct and dictate and show you the best way. Respond to his invitation by stop doing things your way. Respond to his invitation through obedience. Get off that crown. Amen? Let's pray. Hello again, it's Pastor Marshall, and I just wanted to say thank you for listening to this message. If you want to hear other messages or maybe find out more about our church, you can visit redhillschurch.com. From there, you'll find links to our social media pages, message archive, and ways you can support the ministry work. Thanks again for spending time with us, and God bless.